We have two Bible readings today from the New Testament. The first is Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, which, if you've got the church Bible, is on page 1177. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take a stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after have you done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given to me, so that I will be will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. And our second reading is from 1 Peter 5, verses 8 to 11, which is on page 1224 of your Bible. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody, once again. It's, uh, we've been working through a series uh, called Foundations for growing in grace. And I put it to you a couple of weeks ago uh, that I was encouraging you to make your number one priority for this year, uh, not that you get fit, not that you go and do a new course or you get a promotion or something like that, but that you would be growing in your relationship with God, that you would look back on 2020 as a year where you significantly grew in your love and your trust and your service of our Lord. Not only because that's the best kind of life, but also because it's what you were made for. Uh, I've quoted Augustine a couple of times here. Here he is again. Uh, You have made us for yourselves, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Actually growing in our relationship with the one for whom we were made to have relationship. So I'm putting this challenge before you. And what we've been doing is working through some of the key foundations Uh, that will help you grow. And this week, we're looking at our last uh, foundation, uh, and here it is. It's called You Have Authority. So we've had four. You are accepted, you are delivered, you are not alone, and you have authority. Got four points for you. Uh, The story so far, a bit of a recap. Then we're going to focus in on this authority question in foundation number four, some of its implications, and then what does it look like to craft a well-founded life? So you got that? 
Now, can I say, I'm going to very briefly recap where we've been, but it's very, very brief. Uh, and if you want to know more, and if you haven't been here, maybe like many of us, you've been away on holidays, you'll find all the sermons on our website. Uh, you can just log on, search Trinity Church Brighton. They're all there, as you can see. Uh, there's a little heading. You can find them. You can download them. You can listen to them anytime you want. Uh, can I encourage you, if you haven't, because these sermons are actually designed to go together, uh, not just as one-offs. You need the whole set. So there you have it. Uh, it's there for you. So let's dive in. Let's give you the brief rundown. I have, my clock is ticking. Where do we start? We start with the bedrock of faith. If we are going to grow in our faith, we have to have this under our feet. And this is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That must be the foundation upon what we build. And what is the gospel? The gospel simply is the historical events of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the key elements that make the gospel, the historical events of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And upon that, the whole Christian faith is built. Do away with that. Find another foundation. You can build something, but it's not going to stand and it is not a Christian life. So if we're going to grow in our faith, we must build on the gospel, on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then you ask, and we asked in the sermons, what does that mean? Because that was 2,000 years ago. What good is that for me? And we talked about union with Christ. The Bible talks about uh, how we are united to Jesus by faith. And what Jesus did happened to us as well. So the best illustration for, for this uh, is me, is me, is me. Uh, I might be the best illustration. I'll have to think about how I can make that work. Uh, no, uh, is a plane. Um, I am not an aeroplane. Goodness, okay. Whew, okay. Um, when you, what, the relationship you need to have with the plane, if, you're good, if it's going to be of any good to you, is you actually need to be in the plane, don't you? And what happens to the plane happens to you. So if the plane was to, say, fly from Adelaide to Barcelona, uh, you would be on that plane, and all of a sudden, with very little effort, you would be actually transported to that other side of the world. That is there. Uh, and so uh, what happens to the plane happens to you. And the Bible tells us that our faith unites us to Christ like be us being in the plane. And so what happens to Christ happens to us. So the Bible tells us that we died with Christ, that we were risen with Christ, and that we reign with Christ. What happened to Jesus happened to us. And faith, the gift of God to us, actually unites us to Christ. And that lets us build on our foundations. Foundation number one. Justification by faith. This we called, you are accepted. So how do we know that we are acceptable before God? How do we know that he welcomes us in? Simply because of the perfect, finished work of Christ. That is why. It's not that we are good. It is that he is good. It's not that we fulfilled everything that was required. It's that he did it for us. That is the foundation. We are declared to be in a right relationship with God because of what Christ did for us that we receive by faith. Simply, 
you are accepted. It is a two-way transfer. And so Jesus gets our sin and we get his righteousness. So it's not just that our penalty has been paid. We actually get his perfect performance comes to us. And so that is it. We are accepted before God on the basis of the perfect finished work of Christ. That is not foundation number one. There's a whole sermon in about a minute. Okay. Foundation number two. We call this one sanctification. It is there simply you are delivered. So when Jesus died and rose again, not only did he pay sin's penalty, but he broke sin's power. The Bible talks about us being slaves to sin. And because of what Christ did, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to Christ. We have been set free that we might live for him. We are delivered. Foundation number three explains how this hits the ground in our lives, that we are not alone. We are not orphans. Jesus promised that he would send his Holy Spirit into our lives, that we would not be orphans. And the Spirit of God, what Jesus made possible by dying and rising again, the Spirit makes actual in our life. So the Spirit applies the victory of Christ and gives us power for life, power for ministry, gives us God's presence, that the Father, the Son, come and dwell with us. And give us a peace that transcends all understanding. That is foundation number three. And foundation number four this week, we are looking at you have authority. We have in Christ's name, as Christ's people, we have spiritual authority. And it is the last of our foundations that is there. So let us dive in. Okay? Now, I don't know how you think about the Christian life, but did you think when you became a Christian that you found yourself in the midst of combat? Is that how you think of the Christian life? Because this morning we're talking about what people will talk about as spiritual warfare. Talk about the fight against sin and the world and the devil and particularly the latter. Now, some of you this morning might be really excited. Oh, wow, we're talking about this. I love talking about this. Others might be thinking, oh my goodness, what kind of a church have I come to? I didn't think I signed up for this this morning. There's a, there's a spectrum, can I say. And on one end of the spectrum, you have people who I would suggest have an unhealthy obsession with this topic. But then if you're like me, There's the other end of the spectrum where you have a whole lot of people who are kind of like, no, (laughs) spiritual, what's that? What are we on about? Who are we talking about? And so you have those two ends of the spectrum. And I think both of them are perhaps unhelpful. One lot says it's all the devil. The other go, who's the devil? The truth is somewhere in the middle. C.S. Lewis who wrote a great little book called The Screwtape Letters, if anyone's looking for something to read. In the preface to that, he says this. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive 
an unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. You see, I think Lewis was very wise. Let me speak a word of caution here at the start. Spiritual warfare is not a biblical term. You will not find it in scripture. Nowhere does Paul, Jesus, any of the Bible writers talk about the topic of spiritual warfare under that heading. It's a heading that Christian writers have generated to summarise the particular part of the Christian life, the conflict that the Christian finds living as a faithful Christian in a hostile world that has not just the flesh and blood, not just the material elements, but a spiritual dimension to it. There are many questions that you might have, and this is where I think the challenge can be for us, that we go off with all these questions, we want answers to all these things. The Bible doesn't tell us everything that you might want to know, everything that I might want to know. But the Bible tells us enough. A man much wiser than me, David Powlison, wrote this. He says, our enemy works within the fog of war. If you've ever, uh, this is the kind of the mystery zone that you can't actually work out what's actually happening. And God does not explain all that goes on in that fog. God tells us what we need to know. His purposes are always practical, never theoretical. So we can live faithfully, courageously and fruitfully. He teaches us just enough so that we can oppose the flesh the world and the devil, and opposed uh, Christ's glory. I've made a typo there, and I've forgotten exactly how the quote goes, but you get the idea. Uh, opposed is probably the right word. And, and seek uh, or, or all that is opposed to Christ's glory and our welfare, I think is probably what that's trying to say. Now, can I say, I have about 20 minutes left of this sermon. This is a huge topic. If you are interested in this topic, can I give you one particular book? And if you're not interested in this topic, get interested in the topic and go read the book anyway. Okay, it is a book written by a man by the name of Thomas Brooks. It was written a number of hundred years ago, but it's still quite accessible. And I found PDF copies of this book online. You can also go to Kurong or other Christian bookstops and find it. It's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, and it's a fantastic book to read. It talks about how Satan attacks us and how God has given us the answers. He's given us the weapons. He's given us everything that we need to fight. That's there. Okay, I want to unpack the whole topic of spiritual warfare under four headings. Who, when, what, how. Got it? Who, when, what, how? Let's dive in. Who are we fighting? Well, Ephesians 6 tells us quite clearly that the Christian life is a battle. Be strong in the Lord, Paul writes at the end of the book of Ephesians, and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not saying that we don't struggle against 
the material forms of that evil, what you could actually say is our struggle is not only against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The Bible is clear that there are personal, intelligent beings that are able to make choices that impact the material world that are utterly opposed to God's purposes in this world. And here Paul lists them. I think what he says is the devil and all his mates is effectively what he's saying. I think he's talking to a particular context that the Ephesians were, I think, trying to look at this and go, oh, there's this kind of one and this kind of one and this kind of one. I don't think that's very helpful. But what Paul is saying is there are malevolent spiritual forces who are working against you and God's purposes in this world. Now, for some of you, you're going, are you serious? Like, really? Didn't we kind of get out of this? This kind of superstition, this kind of... Haven't we worked out that actually the devil, little guy with horns and a red suit and a pitchfork, it's all make-believe? Well, can I say the horns, the pitchfork, the red suit probably is make-believe? That's just a contemporary manifestation. But it's interesting, isn't it? I think our society has a real problem with evil. And if you do away with what the Bible tells us, how do you explain it? So maybe you're here this morning and you're like, no, nah, devil, don't believe in that. Can I say two things? Why are you happy with good spiritual forces? You kind of like Jesus and God, but you can't deal with the devil and demons. That's number one. And maybe I need to suggest to you that maybe it's not the Christian that's being narrow. It might be you. It's represented... Many of you all know the book that uh, was written a few years ago called uh, The Silence of the Lambs. It was made into a really quite uh, horrifically scary movie. Uh, and uh, it's a, about an FBI agent tracking a serial killer who uh, uses a, another man, Hannibal Lecter, uh, to aid her in her quest to find this man. And uh, Jodie Foster plays Agent Starling. And she is the classic materialist. She doesn't believe in good and evil. And she's meeting Hannibal Lecter for the first time in the book. And she says to him, what happened to you that made you like this? See the presupposition? There's something in, her, in his background. Maybe mum didn't love him enough. Maybe something happened in terms of some horrific event. There's some explanation. But Hannibal Lecter gives a fairly chilling answer. He says, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up on good and evil for behaviourism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand and say, I am evil? Typhoid and swans. It all comes from the same place. He's challenging her. And I think this is a challenge that our society can't answer. 
Are typhoid and swans all from the same place? Are people ultimately not responsible for the choices that they make? Is there no such thing as evil in this world? If that's you this morning, perhaps consider that it is you that is being narrow. Who are we fighting? We are fighting the spiritual forces of evil in this present age. Let me say a few other things, drawing on a bit more of a broader canvas. The devil is real. He is potent. He can act and he will act, but he is defeated. He cannot achieve goals that thwart God's intentions. And neither, a lot of people tend to think of of God and the devil kind of like this. Ah, you wouldn't see it. I've got, a, I've got a picture on my screen here of two really incredibly buff guys arm wrestling. And there's this kind of this challenge, who's going to win the arm wrestle? Is it going to be God? Is it going to be Satan? And they're struggling against each other. It's not like that at all. There is no struggle that God can lose. It is not an arm wrestle for the future of the cosmos. Satan cannot thwart God's ultimate, intel, uh, his ultimate intentions. There's not going to be an upset victory where all of a sudden Satan's going to pull it out of the, pull it out of the back. No. It actually tells us in Revelation 12, 12 that the Satan is filled with fury. Sorry, this is going a bit AWOL at the moment. Maybe he's working in my technology. <laughs> The devil is filled with fury, Revelation 12, 12, because he knows his time is short. Why is it short? Because the victory will not be won. The victory has been won. When Christ died and rose again, he defeated everything that stood against God's intentions. Satan's time is short because the victory has been won. That is there. Who are we fighting? We're fighting a real, potent, but defeated enemy. When are we fighting? We're fighting, let's say, within a period of time that the Bible talks about as this present evil age. Ephesians 5.17 speaks of the days are evil. Galatians 1 4 tells us that Jesus rescued us from this present evil age. They are there. There's a time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. That's where we live. That's where the battle is fought. But it also tells us that there are particular moments. And so you'll find there in Ephesians 6 verse 13, we're told to put on the armour of God so that when the day of evil comes... We may be able to stand. What I think you've got is a picture like what happened in the Second World War. Okay? In Europe, everything blew up on the 1st of September 1939. And the war continued in Europe. I know I was pulled up on this last week. Yes, in Europe till the 8th of May 1945. Continued in the Pacific a little bit longer. But in that time, there was unending conflict Now, if I was a soldier in that war, my experience of that conflict would be ebbs and flows, wouldn't it? There'd be times when I was in a truck travelling to that place, 
didn't fire a bullet in anger, didn't do anything. There'd be other times where it would be very intense, very full on, very hand to hand. And I think what's, that's what the Bible says. We have a time where Satan's days are numbered. This present evil age when, between when the victory has been won and the victory will be finally brought to bear. And in that moment, we will have particular times where we are particularly under attack. That is there. So when is that going to happen? Well, for some of us, it's today. For some of us, it's tomorrow. For some of us, well, it might be next week. The war is raging, but you may face that attack in particular ways at particular times. And the Bible tells us, as we read in our second reading, be on your guard. Be watchful. Be of sober mind. Be ready. Because what are we fighting? We're fighting the devil's schemes. One of the things uh, I found quite interesting, if you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, none of my things are coming up, are they? They're not. Okay, I'm going to read this to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul's there talking about a matter of church discipline. And he says this. He says, we are not unaware of the devil's schemes. Okay, that assumes that God has told us everything we need to know about the devil's schemes. We are not unaware. So therefore, we have reasonable, I think, grounds to go to the scriptures and say everything I need to fight this spiritual battle, to stand firm against Satan in the day of evil, I have in scripture. We are fighting the devil. We don't need extra information. I don't know, some of you may have come out of churches that love to talk about this topic. And I read some stuff during the week that was pretty crazy. Uh, and they would claim all sorts of authority. They would acknowledge that it's actually outside of scripture. But they'd say, but you need to know it. Can I say, no, you don't. God has given us in his word everything we need. So what is the devil's schemes that we are fighting? What kind of strategy does he use? I could give a few. I'm going to give you just three. Number one, and it's there the first time the devil pops up his head in Genesis chapter 3. Temptation. He makes us mistrust God's word. Did God really say? He entices us into sin. He shows just how wonderful if we gave in and went that way it would be. And if we turned away from what God promises, no, God doesn't want the best for you. God's trying to rip you off by telling you not to do that. God's a spoil sport. God's trying to actually make your life boring. Look at them. They're having so much fun. He tempts us to doubt God's word and his goodness. He makes us take our eyes off God himself and the gospel. So maybe he says to us, you know what? God doesn't mind it. God's a forgiving God, of course. Don't worry about it. Just do it. Then ask, say sorry. You know, sometimes it's easier to say sorry than it is to stand firm. Just give in. Enjoy it. God will forgive you. 
He presents the grace of God, but minimises the holiness. Yes, God is gracious. God is forgiving. God is holy. God is righteous. And sin is an offence to him. He tempts us to take our eyes off the foundation of the gospel. He tries to move us away from our trust in the promises. God's, uh, Satan's first strategy is temptation. His second strategy is accusation. That's actually what the word devil means. It means an accuser. And you see it in the book of Job. God uh, is there in his throne room and Satan comes before him and accuses Job. And by implication actually accuses God. We should expect that the devil slanders us. He slanders us before others and he slanders us to ourselves. He accuses us before our own conscience. If you were a real Christian, you wouldn't do that. Surely God couldn't love you. God couldn't forgive you. God wouldn't accept you. You're not strong enough to break free from the, the, the tangle, the chains of that sin. There's really no hope for you. You failed not once, not twice, three, four, five, six, add the number. Satan accuses us before our conscience and many of us will know that and we've felt that. He accuses us before the world. How easy is it before the world? Just read the press whenever they want to talk about Christians. Look at popular culture and see how Christians are portrayed. It's the worst of us. It's our gravest misdeeds, as real as many of them are. The good stuff gets overlooked. Satan accuses us before the world. He minimizes the positive. He accentuates the negative, both in the world, but also in our conscience. He accuses us. God couldn't love you. Who would accept you? Can you see how having your feet on the foundations that are ours in the gospel answers Satan's accusation? God couldn't love you. What makes you think you're good enough for him? I'm not. But in Christ, I am loved. I am accepted. And nothing can take that away. You see how the foundations that we have in Christ. God's left you. God doesn't love you. No, God has given me his spirit. The Father and the Son, they are with me. They give me his peace. I may not feel it in the here and the now. That doesn't make it any less true. Satan will accuse us. He will tempt us. And he will afflict us. The Bible does tell us that there sometimes is a spiritual element in physical suffering. The Apostle Paul, and we don't know what he was talking about, at the end of 2 Corinthians talks about the thorn of Satan in his flesh. Now, lots of people have spilt lots of ink about what on earth that is. But the one thing that is obvious is that it was real. And Paul 
under the Holy Spirit's influence, records for us that it is the thorn of Satan. Interesting, what's his answer? Paul doesn't go and have an exorcism. Paul doesn't go and do some of the funky stuff that people recommend. He prays and he asks God. And God says no. And it remains. You can read about it. I think it's 2 Corinthians 12. It's there. Job. Job shows us that Satan can cause physical suffering. The opposition that Christians face in the world, the very real threat of death, has a satanic origin. God allows Satan a certain leeway. The funny thing I find is history shows that you think he'd learn. History shows again and again and again you persecute Christians and all of a sudden there's more of them. Uh, an early church father said of the Roman Empire that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Thomas Brooks, who I mentioned before, said this wonderful quote. He said, so afflictions may kill us, but they cannot hurt us. They may take away my life, but they cannot take away my God my Christ, my crown. The opposition we face is real. Under God's sovereign hand, Satan is allowed leeway. It always achieves God's ultimate purposes and the Christian is secure. But it's real. So how do we fight if we are going to stand firm, how do we fight? As I said, don't go find the latest book on spiritual warfare unless it's taking you to the Bible. Unless it's taking you to passages like Ephesians 6. We must test these things against God's truth. We must see uh, both the content and the balance we must make sure that they're speaking the truth, but also that they're not so overplaying it or so underplaying it, that it doesn't have the balance that we see there in Scripture. Let me give you one word of caution. A lot of people spend a lot of time in what I would call and others would call the descriptive books of the Bible. The Gospels, Acts particularly, where we see things historical events recounted for us and then they spend time and they draw conclusions ah because paul did this because jesus did this we should do something like that can i say we need to be careful to make a prescription out of what is a description okay we need to be careful to read things in context and read things carefully I think Ephesians 6, if you want to spend some time thinking about the whole topic of spiritual warfare, is a very, very helpful place to start. And we need to recognise as we go through Ephesians 6 that Ephesians 6 is not a new teaching. Ephesians 6 is the conclusion of a letter where Paul has been talking about stuff like marriage and parenting and ministry in the church and telling the truth and not stealing Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, the passage that Jane read for us, 
it gives us the spiritual context on these things. That when you are facing issues in your marriage, it's not just a material issue that has to do with your families of origin. In there, there is a spiritual element that will be telling you, don't trust God's word. Don't trust God's promises. God doesn't have his, your best interest at heart. There is a spiritual element there. When you're tempted at work to fudge the truth, to maybe twist things to get the promotion or to avoid the reprimand, there's a spiritual element. It's not just flesh and blood. See Ephesians 6 as part of that larger thing that brings all the teaching about Jesus and all the teaching about living the Christian life to its climax. The victory is won. And Paul is telling us that when you face that temptation to lie, to cheat, to slander, to walk out on your husband, to walk out on your wife, to scream at the kids, to do whatever, to do something that you know is not God's purposes, it is a spiritual battle. And he has given us in Christ everything we need. Don't have time now. But if you go through the armour and weaponry of Ephesians 6, the helmet of salvation that is yours in Christ, the breastplate of righteousness that is achieved by his perfect work, the sword of the spirit that he has given us and his spirit energises They are things not that we need to go and find. They are things that God himself, through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, has given us. Paul is saying, in summary, put on the gospel. Put your feet firmly on the gospel. Sink down deep into the gospel. Don't just know it in your head, but have it in your heart. Live the life of faith. By the power of the Spirit. It's not enough just to know the intellectual facts of the gospel. Paul tells us that we need to put it on. We'll talk a bit about that in a second. Implications, just really quickly. Realism, brothers and sisters, life in Christ is a battle. And we must expect that. J.C. Ryle, Bishop of Liverpool back in the 1800s, said, A true Christian is known by two things. Peace of conscience. Why? Because you're accepted because of Christ. And a war within. Because the battleground that the spiritual battle is so often fought on is the battleground of our hearts and lives. Peace of conscience. War within. Expect a struggle. When we preach the gospel... It's not enough that someone grasps it intellectually. It's a spiritual thing. It is a spiritual thing and we should expect there will be opposition when we preach the gospel. We should be realistic. We should be optimistic though. Because Satan is defeated. Because God has given us all that we need. And James 4 verse 7 that Jane brought for us before. Resist the devil And he will flee. That's God's promise. We have authority. In Christ's name. Not in our name. 
as Christ's people, not, not in and of ourselves, we have authority and we have everything we need to stand. Let's wrap up. Crafting a well-founded life. Sorry, I know I've gone a bit long, but it's kind of the kind of sermon you don't want to say. So I'm just going to drop my last point. You know now, no, no, you know a bit, but I haven't told you anything about what to do. Okay. Can I say, what is the sword of the Spirit? It's the Word of God. How does the Lord Jesus Christ oppose Satan? Look in the Gospels. Satan comes to him, tempts him. The word of God was in the mouth of the Son of God. Jesus answered Satan with God's own word. And if it's good enough for him, it should be good enough for us. That is where God's strengths are. We answer Satan's lies with God's truth. Satan's distortions with God's promises. Know God's word like Paul says to the Colossians, let the word of God dwell in you richly. The 777 thing that Matt flagged for you before. Use it. Get into God's word each and every day. I think it was Moody that said, uh, a person cannot take enough oxygen in their lungs uh, for a week. What makes us think that once a week is enough in God's word? We should be in God's word each and every day. Know God's word, follow the Spirit's lead. God has given us his spirit. And if the spirit is starting to prick your conscience, you know, the friends ring you up and say, hey, you want to go out to that bar? And you know that perhaps these are friends that have led you to drink too much, to act in ways that are inconsistent with your faith. And you start thinking, oh, I'm not sure if that's the best thing in the world. If it's sin that the Spirit is bringing before your conscience. Listen. Listen. Avoid situations where you are shutting down things that are promoting you to holiness. If you can feel the Spirit, if you can hear the Spirit saying, that's not smart. Don't sit there and go, but I want to share the gospel with my friends. That's great. But maybe in the bar at 11 o'clock at night on Friday isn't the best place to do it. Maybe catch up for lunch. Share the gospel with them then in an environment that actually works better for your godliness. Listen to the Spirit's lead. Cultivate humility. Don't think that you are strong enough because you are not. We do not have the power in and of ourselves. But in Christ we do. And that should make us humble. Brooks writes, it's foolish to think you can sit on a brothel's doorstep and not end up in the prostitute's bed. Do we think that we're strong enough? Do we think that we can do it in our own strengths? Be humble. Rejoice in your salvation. True joy. Love that overflows when we know just how wonderfully we have been blessed. It will be easy to actually see the counterfeit. It will be easy to spot the fake. There was a funny, uh, funny ad a few years ago 
with Tom Cruise and lamb dinners. Do you remember this? It's Australia Day. We're going to have a lamb ad on Australia Day. hope you appreciate my Australia Day outfit here, by the way. Um, but, uh, you know, um, Tom Cruise, this girl wins a date with Tom Cruise on the radio. And uh, they ring her up and, oh, you've won the date with Tom Cruise. This is when Tom Cruise was someone you wanted to have a date with, not the creepy kind of person who's out there now. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but she's there and she goes, uh, no, sorry, mum's cooking a lamb roast. <laughs> Just turns, turns him down. But the thing is, if you know how good God is and what it is he has given you, why would you be tempted with that? Rejoice in your salvation. Be vigilant. Recognize that Satan does not have your best interests at his heart. He has your worst interests. Be vigilant because the days are evil. Do not meet the enemy in your own strength. Recognize that in the little challenges, day by day, to stand firm for Christ, there is a spiritual element. The challenge to set others before yourself. The challenge to serve, the challenge to love, the challenge to speak. There's a spiritual element. And don't think you can do it in your own strength. Meet spiritual challenges with spiritual resources. Come to the prayer meeting. Spend time with your brothers and sisters begging God, pleading with God to do what he has promised. To give his people what they need. And pray. Let me end with Brooks. Prayer is a shelter to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to the devil. Let's pray. Father, what wonderful victory the Lord Jesus achieved for us at the cross. What an amazing conquest, Father, that he came and in our place died and rose again. And in so doing, he defeated the one who held the world in slavery. He broke the shackles. He answered the accusations. And he provided the one definitive proof of the faithfulness and the mercy and the love that you have. Father, let us live in that victory. Let us know the battle and know that through the gospel, by the gift of the Spirit, you have given us everything we need. So when the day of evil comes, we may stand for your glory. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.